1: Now, in addition to my JD, I'm also a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. Now, both of these great degrees were obtained from my favorite alma mater, Golden Gate University School of Law, located in the still mostly deserted, but slowly reawakening streets of always beautiful downtown San Francisco. Now, because of my training, my experience, and mostly my lifelong interests, I primarily practice bankruptcy, debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and, of course, taxation law. And I'm proud to say that as part of my general practice, I sometimes have the opportunity to seek out and vindicate, or at least attempt to vindicate, the rights of seniors who find themselves the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that's on and about the airwaves today. I am, as always, so pleased to be able to come to you again today from my makeshift studios in my home in the beautiful, but still mostly deserted streets of wonderful Oakland, California. And I come to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that is tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances, and hopefully provide you with at least an outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find qualified professional help to help you with your issues. I do this because it is my firm belief that representing yourself in a legal matter is just like taking a butter knife to a gunfight. If you're lucky and you get real, real close to your adversary, you might be able to scratch her on the arm or even poke her in the eye. But more than likely, because everyone else in the courtroom dealing with your matter will either be a lawyer herself or be represented by one. As such, you're standing alone there with your little butter knife Will make you likely dead on arrival. That is to say, your valid claims and your righteous defenses will likely see the promised land way before you do. So, in case you haven't guessed it, um, the purpose of Selwyn's Law is to discuss the law related to your money. And unfortunately, especially during these times, probably the lack thereof, in your overall finances and what you need to consider to protect your or your families or your businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. So picking up where we left off, today's topic is, of course, the spread of COVID-19, But again, we're going to focus on the potential economic and legal implications for individuals, families, and small business owners, and our employees, and how much power, if any, can our elected and or appointed government officials expend in order to control our behavior, in order to protect us from this deadly scourge, on the one hand, without unduly limiting or inhibiting our constitutional rights on the other. Again, the focus of discussion, uh, our discussion is analyzing the lawsuit that was filed on April 24, 2020 by a group of California business owners, the plaintiffs, challenging California's governor, at Gavin Newsom, our attorney general, Xavier Becerra, our California uh, director and chief public Health Officer, Sonia Angel, M.D., and various and assorted city and county officials in Los Angeles, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Ventura counties in Southern California, including uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. These are the defendants. And the uh, plaintiffs were asking a federal court to overturn these defendants' various orders closing the plaintiffs' non-essential businesses that the elected and appointed officials implemented to slow the spread of COVID-19 amongst us. So in sum, the business plaintiffs state in their complaint that the elected officials shelter in place and shut down lockdown orders of their non-essential business infringed on these business plaintiffs' civil rights and liberties under both the U.S., United States, and the California constitutions and thus have caused these businesses to suffer massive and widespread economic damages while unconstitutionally placing the burden of the defendant's respective orders on the backs of both small and large non-essential businesses, such as the plaintiffs, who have already been financially crippled and forced to shut their doors uh, of their businesses and conduct mass layoffs." So again, my sources, because I, some of you, why do I state my sources? Because I'm a researcher, I'm a lawyer, and I don't believe in putting false information out on the airwaves. So I have to tell you who my sources are so you can look it up yourself. Again, my primary source is the order issued by Governor Newsom. He He issued one on the 4th and another one on the 19th of March, mandating that all people living in California must stay home unless they needed to go visit critical, essential businesses that produce food, energy, or health care services. I also uses my source, the complaint that was filed by the businesses. It's entitled Gondola Adventure, Adventures Incorporated, et al., versus Gavin Newsom, et al., and it's case number 20 20- dash. 03789, 03789, and it was filed in the United States District Court for the Central District of California Western Division, which is located in the beautiful downtown Los Angeles. My third source is the United States Constitution, which was written in 1787 signed by the parties on September 17, 1787, and ratified by the requisite nine states in 1788, and it was used to replace the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution. I also use as my source a wonderful nonpartisan United States Constitution analysis tool uh, titled Interactive Constitution by the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and uh, can be found at Constitution Center, one word, dot org forward slash interactive constitution. Now this tool allows learners of all ages, including you youngsters out there that are at home, and I want you to use this tool. It allows us all to discover how experts agree and disagree about the constitution's history, its meaning, and it explores arguments from all sides of the constitutional debate because this is our foundational document the tool analyzes each clause of the constitution by having a representative of the American Constitutional Society that is a progressive policy organization and a person from the Federalist Society an organization of conservatives and libertarians and they both for each clause write a joint uh essay about what they both agree is on and then they write separate essays explaining their divergent views of each of the particular clauses in the Constitution. So here are the facts of the conundrum that we face today. As citizens of California... As stated in the abstract of a working paper, working paper number 26992 that was produced on April, in April, uh, the end of April in 2020 by the National Bureau of Economic Research entitled, Did California's Shelter in Place Order Work? Early COVID-19 Related Public Health Effects. And it was written by Friedman, McNichols, Sabian, and Dave. And it states in its abstract, On March 19, 2020, California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom issued Executive Order N-332020, which required all residents of the state of California to shelter in place for all but essential activities such as grocery shopping, retrieving prescriptions from a pharmacy, or caring for relatives. The shelter-in-place order The first such statewide order issued in the United States was designed to reduce COVID-19 cases and mortality. However, as no study had examined its impact, this study by the National Bureau of Economic Research was the first to examine the effect of the shelter-in-place that was adopted for the health-related reasons. Now, using daily state-level Coral Linus data and a synthetic control research design, we, those are the authors of this paper, find that California's statewide shelter-in-place Um, reduced COVID-19 cases by 125.5 to 219.7 per 100,000 population by April 20, one month after the order. We further find that California shelter in place led to as many as 1,661 fewer COVID-19 deaths during the period. Now, back of the envelope calculation suggests that there were about 400 jobs lost per life saved. So according to my own calculations, We expended 664,400 jobs to save 1,661 lives. So my question is this, was it worth it? And who gets to decide? Is it our elected officials or some subset of us without the knowledge to do so? When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. But first, we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side.
0: back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of today's topic. Just how much power, if any, can our governmental officials expend in order to control our behavior and or protect us from this deadly COVID-19 scourge on the one hand without unduly limiting our constitutional rights on the other. So I talked about statewide implication Let's go up to the national level. Here's a conundrum, as stated in, a, in the May 12th public policy article published by Knowledge at Wharton, the online journal of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. They say, of the many challenges the pandemic has raised, the most fundamental one is how much we are willing to pay or more accurately, lose by shutting down the economy in order to save lives. Now, Wharton management professor Peter Caballelli wrote in a April 30th column of the Human Resources Executive, this sounds like a public policy question, but it's also a practical management problem because employers are gearing up for the challenge of bringing employees back to the workforce, when we know that doing so and ending social isolation will increase the risk that more people will get sick and die. An analysis performed by the Penn Wharton budget model, released on May 1 and updated most recently on May 11, shows that as states relax their policies and residents reduce social distancing, jobs, and gross domestic product will grow, but so does the number of COVID nineteen cases and deaths to an alarming level. Now, using a simulator, the PWBM—that's the uh, the Penn Wharton Business Model Analysis—shows that if the states don't open and social distancing behavior remains in place as it is today, total coronavirus deaths in the United States will be nearly 151,000 by July 15th, including deaths that were taken before the simulation began on May 1. Now, a partial reopening would claim another 33,000 lives, while an additional 212,000 lives would be lost with full reopening, bringing the total deaths in our country to 363,000 by July 15th, just a, a little under a month from now. Further, if people see full reopening as a return to normal and ignore social distancing, going back to, behave hey, back on, say, February 1, there would be nearly 715,000 deaths cumulative by July 15th. So again, the budget model of the Wharton School updates their simulator once a week and presents ro- a rolling two-month uh, forecast. So with that grounding and what is at stake and setting aside the business plaintiff's other causes of action for now, I want to focus on what I consider to be the heart of their complaint. The They say that the enactment of the shelter-in-place order subjected them to at least partial, but in some instances, com- complete taking in violation of the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, in that the prohibition of the plaintiff's business operations, that is to say their non-essential businesses, constitutes a regulatory taking of private property for public purposes without providing just compensation, therefore. So what do Professor Richard A. Epstein of the University of Chicago School of Law and Professor Eduardo Peneverell of Cornell University School of Law have to say about the takings clause in their joint essay for the interactive constitutional tool that that I've been focusing on. Well, they say the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution reads as follows. In understanding the position. That is to say, it actually says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So in understanding the provision, we agree, those are the two uh, law professors, agree that it is helpful to keep in mind the reasons behind the takings clause. We agree that the clause is intended to uphold the principle that government should not single out isolated individuals to bear the excessive burden, even in support of an important public good. When this happens, the payment of just compensation provides the means of removing any special burden. The most influential statement of this particular principle is found in the case Armstrong versus the United States, a 1960 case, where the Supreme Court wrote, the Fifth Amendment Taking Clause was designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. So, the Takings Clause is not about, or in my opinion, I'm stepping out of their article, in my opinion, it's not about when everybody has to suffer. It's about when one or two people have to suffer and all the rest of uh, the public um, gets the benefit and one or two bear the burden. I don't know if that's going on here, but I'm sharing this with you so you can think about it. Now, getting back into the professor's articles for the taking clause to serve this principle effectively. We both, we both, the the professors agree that the guarantees of just compensation must apply at the very least to cases in which the government engages in outright confiscation of property. This means more than merely the government taking a privately owned asset for itself. It also includes situations where the government permanently deprives a private owner Of possession of an asset or gives the asset or the right to permanently physically occupy the asset to someone else. Does that sound like, this is Selwyn again talking, does that sound like what's going on here? The government is permanently taking something from the business owners for public good? Let's get back into their essay. We agree that The compensation requirements must apply not only to land, but to all forms of private property. At a minimum, that means the clause applies to government confiscation of personal property, including interests as diverse as animals and corporate stock. Remember last week I was talking about someone's little farm, goat farm? Back into the article. The clause also applies not only to the confiscation of all Existing interest in an individual piece of property, but to confiscation of certain lesser interests in the property. Under Anglo American law, this would include recognized interests such as easements, that is to say, rights of way, leases, mortgages, life estates, and remainders. The clause also applies to the Confiscation of intangible property, including intellectual property, such as patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. Now, although the clause does not read to apply to taxes, uh, this w- does apply when the government seizes a specific pool of money, such as a bank account or a bag full of cash, or when in order, um, it orders an individual to pay a specific amount of money. We also agree that the clause prohibits the government from confiscating property, even with just compensation, if it does not do it for a public use. Although the boundaries of this prohibition are controversial, we agree that it encompasses at a minimum situations in which the government takes property from A for the purposes of giving it to B solely for B's private benefit. So we agree that the phrase, just compensation, means that the owner of property shall receive at a minimum the fair market value of the property in its best alternate use, independent of what the government is using it for. In most instances, the compensation required shall be paid in cash, but in some instances, the government compensation may come in the form of some reciprocal uh, or return of benefit to a party, such as an increased value of that part of the land that a um, a, a Lucy will Uh, keep in exchange for the value that's been enhanced by, say, building a road over the property that has been taken. Finally, we agree that under the takings clause, the government need not compensate private property owners when it requires them to take reasonable steps to avoid pollution or the release of a harm to either the public or the private, such as for air and water. So I think that's the most close analysis of maybe these business owners are temporarily losing the ability to control their business, but it's being done for the good of the whole public. So anyway, that's the part that these two law professors agreed on. And, you know, I'm going to leave it there for now. But what I want to leave you with is I want to challenge all of you out there within the listening, my listening voice to go to the Interactive Constitution and read the separate essays by these two professors so you can get the contours of where the taking clause diverge. But as always in closing here at Ellen's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law especially when we want to keep our families and businesses safe within the bounds of our most important governmental document, the United States Constitution. So take care, stay safe, know what you're talking about before you get involved in things that you don't understand. That's the watchword. Take care. See you next time.